Hey everyone, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And just a heads up, this is going to be part one of a two-part episode because we get going on wheels and we can't stop. Robert, I thought today we should start with uh, some poll results. Are you ready to consult the masses with me? Nothing's more exciting than starting with poll results. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay, so in, in 2013... Time Magazine and Qualcomm, they partnered to do a survey. They polled more than 10,000 people across 17 countries to find out some views about invention and inventiveness. And there were some interesting questions here we might want to come back to in the future about public opinion about how invention happens. But uh, they asked people to rank as one of the questions here, what are the most important inventions of all time? And three got singled out in the results here. You had the internet – all right, you know, it's a great invention, a terrible invention. It's the Voldemort of inventions. So okay, yeah. yeah. It's like Odin. It's wise and tricksy. It's great and terrible. Yeah, I mean, but that's all inventions, really. Any kind of any kind of uh, fabulous new technology is going to bring uh, at least equal portions of both. Uh, I got the second one is electricity, I'd yeah, say. That's yeah, that's a big one. That's a really good qualifier. That should be near the top. Yeah. Uh, then the third one singled out as the most important is the wheel. Now, these three are all strike me as very different because electricity is not a technology. (laughs) We invented the technology to utilize electricity and to uh, harness its power. Uh, And and likewise, as we'll discuss, similar with the wheel – the internet, we're still trying to figure out how to actually harness it and keep it from, uh, you know, shocking us. Yeah, there is no internet in nature, is there? No, no, there's not. <laughs> and people might say there are no wheels in nature, though you could make an argument either way on that, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But it's true that people really do often single out the wheel as like the most important invention in history, right? It's mm-hmm. it's in all the Gary Larson cartoons for a reason. Oh yeah, they're they're at least they're they're probably more than two, but I ran across at least. These two Gary Larson cartoons about uh, cavemen inventing the wheel or trying to invent the wheel, generally getting something drastically long, wrong, like ro- like riding strapped to the outside of it <laughs> as you're about to go down the hill. There's so many. It is, there's so many uh, bits of fiction that have explored the idea of inventing or reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the Hulu show Future Man recently explored this with a uh, a time traveler going to a post apocalyptic future and. And, and having a job in this primitive society as a wheel maker. And so he keeps trying to improve upon the design and it's, you know, there's, they're, they're catching on fire. They're, they're, they're falling over until he finally gets the design right. Well, yeah, I love how it's, it's this cliche that it's the quintessential example of like an already perfected technology that you don't need to mess with anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the cliche is let's not reinvent the wheel, meaning let's not waste time overthinking something. Right. Sort of equivalent to if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Though I think this is ironic given what we're going to talk about in today's episode because throughout history, the wheel has undergone lots of reinventions and refinements that make it work better or adapt it to a particular use. Let's not reinvent the wheel is actually a really stupid saying because (laughs) we're constantly reinventing the wheel and we're much better off for those reinventions. Yeah, like in this episode, we're not even going to really get into the tire all that much. But certainly, the next time you need a new tire for your vehicle, just go to the mechanic and ask for a wheel. Yeah. Say, hey, give me one of those <laughs> wheels. Uh, it's, it's, it hasn't been improved upon since uh, medieval or, or uh, prehistoric times, right? Just, just throw a wheel on there. I don't care what, how, what kind. Just, just put it on there. Stone, wood, doesn't matter. Well, this brings up a really good point that we should make at the beginning, a, a caveat that we must raise. While the wheel is 
in a way, a simple machine. It's simple in principle. The history of the wheel is a vast, complex subject full of questions that aren't yet and may never be answered or solved, uh, like where and when the wheel was truly first invented, though we'll talk about some ideas about that today. Uh, there's just obviously not a chance we can do justice to the entire history of the wheel in a single episode. So I think today we're going to have to consider this sort of a, a first foray, trying to cover some of the basics, some interesting observations, or things that seemed interesting to us and leave ourselves the opportunity to come back and visit more of the particulars from the invention history of wheel technology in the future. For example, as you say, about tires, a, you know, uh, we, we wouldn't have the wheeled vehicles we have today without tires, and that's just something that we didn't even get into. Now, we typically consider wheels, again, the product of human ingenuity alone. Uh, yet the, the basic form pops up in nature as well, and not only in the form of creatures that can curl up into protective balls. What's your favorite creature that curls up into a protective ball? I mean, Sonic the Hedgehog, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, actually, there, there are there are a few that, that come to mind. I'll get to, get to one in a second. But, okay. Um, uh, one animal we do have to uh, focus in on uh, is certainly the uh, the rotifer, the, the microscopic aquatic animal whose very name is Latin for wheel bearer. Okay, so does it have wheels? Does it roll around in the I microscopic mean, world? Not exactly, but it's a, the, the name is a reference to the crown of cilia around the rotifer's mouth, which move rapidly to aid locomotion and feeding. Uh, but contrary to its name, they don't they themselves don't actually rotate. So it's more kind of like circle bearer. Yeah. Now, you do have uh, creatures like the Mount Lyle salamander and the mother of pearl caterpillar, both of which curl their bodies into hoop-type uh, uh, forms, into little ball-like forms, and can roll away from threats in their hilly environments. Yeah, likewise, the uh, Robert, have you ever seen video of the wheel spider? Oh, I don't think I have. No, this is really cool. It shows up in some documentaries. So it's a spider that's native to the Namib Desert. And the wheel spider is – it's a ground-walking spider, obviously. It's in the desert. It's a huntsman spider. It's not a web spinner. Uh, but it burrows down in the sand dunes of the desert. And it has a mortal enemy, a parasitoid wasp. Now, even if you don't like spiders, uh, if you don't know much about parasitic wasps, watching what a parasitic wasp does to a spider – can be this is worse than any horror movie. It's like the most horrifying thing. In I mean, nature. only if you're sympathizing with the spider. If you're on Team Spider, which I guess you are, Joe. I, mean, I, I'm I guess team I am. Yeah. Myself. You're you're into just like putting an egg on something that ends up eating that thing. I know your general proclivities. I'm well. I'm on Team Wasp. Uh, whenever it's Wasp versus Spider. If it's Spider versus pretty much anything else, I'm on Team Spider. So. <laughs> Well, I guess that's the other way to think about it, that the wasp is a miracle of nature that is really awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, so the parasitic wasp lays an egg on the spider after paralyzing the spider. Then the egg hatches and the larva can eat the spider at leisure, sometimes sort of from the inside out. Uh, so when a wasp attacks, obviously this spider is desperate to escape. It doesn't want to get paralyzed and eaten by a larva. Uh, but it can't crawl across the dunes fast enough to get away from the wasp. So what does it do? If it can, the wheel spider cartwheels down a sand dune, rolling away at high speed to escape becoming a host. And I've read that it can travel at like more than 40 revolutions per second. That's awesome. And again, this is this is dependent, though, upon a hilly environment, you know, some sort of um, a slope down which it may roll. Yeah, and the spider being near the top when it gets attacked, right? right? Like if it's at the bottom when it gets attacked, no dice. Yeah. But, of course, these rolling animals, in a way, are not true wheels in a technological sense. Because when humans use wheels, 
What's crucial is that the wheel is paired with an axle and that the wheel and axle together provide continuous rotational force that can be used to move a fixed body. So it's not just a wheel rolling by itself, right, with Thag and the Gary Larson cartoon taped Mm -hmm. to the outside of a round stone rolling down a hill. So the question is, is there anything more like a true wheel in the natural world where something rotates around a fixed body to move it? I mean, there's nothing quite like a wheel, uh, in nature, but there is a, a rare example of a similar movement that takes place, and that's with uh, bacterial flagellum, a uh, structure found in species such as E. coli. Uh, the flagellum essentially amounts to a long helical screw that rotates to propel the bacterium through its environment, much like a boat's propeller. Yeah, and a boat's propeller is pretty much a wheel, I would say, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, depends on the same sort of movement. Now, of course, lots of things in the natural world that are not alive also roll. Oh, yeah. I mean, snowballs are mm-hmm. going to roll downhill and get bigger. Um, pebbles are going to roll. Uh, so, that, you know, these are certainly examples that early people would have in, in, in various cases had, had access to. They could have seen in action and seen what rolling consists of. But another one we often forget about is uh, the rolling world of poop. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, consider, for instance, that the near constant poops of the goat – are essentially self-hiding, rolling away from these hill roamers, which gives them an advantage against uh, stalking predators with a nose for their scent. Hmm. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the poop of the wombat that is that is more cubical in shape. And uh, one of the theories here is that since their poop is an essential calling card for other members of their species, like essential for you know territory and mating and so forth uh, with the wombat, it, it pays for these poops to not roll away and hide themselves. And thus, they have this kind of cubical uh, structure to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, in addition to poop, uh, you know, various uh, seeds and fruit as well uh, certainly roll away after they have fallen. And outside of the actual uh, you know, movement of rolling. We should also note that the basic form of the wheel is, but what? A circle, a disc, mm-hmm. and one needs only glimpse the sun or the moon in the sky, or see various other circular forms in nature to grasp the idea of, if not a disc in in rolling motion, then at least a disc. Like you, it's not. It it, it it's a, it's essential shape can be found uh, fairly easily in the natural world. Absolutely. Now. One of the things I think we have to also acknowledge up front is that when people say that the wheel is like the most important invention of mm-hmm. all time, I think what they're usually thinking of is the wheel for transportation. But we should also <laughs> acknowledge that like the wheel is like way bigger than just transportation applications, right. even in technology. Are you saying like they could be a complete psychopath and they're like, well, the braking wheel, obviously. <laughs> no. The I'm greatest saying... <laughs> human invention. How, how did we ever strap people down and break all their limbs before that? That is – no, they're, they're missing out on that. But no, I was thinking more of – uh, we like the milling wheel or oh, the yes. potter's wheel. I mean, these these are incredibly important inventions, but I think they're not usually what people have in mind when they think of the wheel. Right. So it, we're we're not going to really explore the like milling wheel, uh, potter's wheel in this episode. But just to give you everybody an an idea of the time frame we're talking about here, the potter's wheel was common in Mesopotamia and the Near East from. 3500 BCE onward and introduced into Egypt and the Aegean region around uh, 2400 BCE. And this is simply uh, – the, the basic idea here is it's a centrifugal force uh, that allows the potter to squeeze and shape 
uh, the, uh, the, 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 the item that they're crafting here. It allows for better and faster production of pottery. And I would guess more uniform as well. Right, yeah. And then, of course, we have wheels that exist purely for religious purposes, such as uh, the prayer wheels of Tibet, uh, where it served as a, a, man, a mechanical manifestation of the wheel of Dharma. And up until the 20th century, I've read virtually – this was virtually the only Tibetan use for the wheel uh, as a, and it was just a device for activating mantras. Tibet, after all, is a, a mountainous region where mm-hmm. you can imagine that, that carts and chariots would be of, of limited use. Uh, that being said, Buddhist concepts, including the Wheel of Dharma, entered Tibet by way of India, where the wheel dates back, you know, many thousands of years. Uh, and this would have uh, the, the Buddhist concepts would have entered into Tibet around the seventh century CE. I mean, it is interesting the extent to which the idea of the wheel has permeated culture and language. Like that, I, I can scarcely think of the idea of something recurring without recourse to the image of the wheel. Yeah, and that's something that we're going to keep coming back to again and again. It's like the the technology of the wheel travels, but so does the idea of the wheel, the, the symbolic legacy of the wheel. Uh, you know, ancient technology that we can then use to try and understand the, the human experience or the passage of time or the cosmos or the machinations of the gods. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I have no way to prove this, but I have to wonder, like, do – do cultures that use wheels, are they more likely to think of history in terms of recurring cycles than cultures mm. that don't? Well, certainly this was the, the older way of looking at, you know, at time was the cyclical nature of it. So, yeah. so it, does, it does make sense that those two would go hand in hand. Now, of course, the important thing to note about all of this is that even though the wheel is an ancient invention and, and it's hard to, to nail down exactly when it comes about – there was a time in various cultures before the wheel uh, or at least before the wheel was something that could really be utilized. Uh, but before even the simplest wheeled vehicle, load was limited by the back. Yeah. Uh, then in snowy climates, sled and ski technology developed because you don't need a wheel for that. You just need something you can drag through the uh, – across the surface of the snow. Um, other in other areas, you're limited by animal carrying capacity, right? If you've uh, domesticated a you know a horse or an ox or some other creature that can uh, that can carry things on its back for you, so you do not have to carry them on your back. Draft animals, yeah, yeah. or uh, or pack animals. Yes, though certainly these were advanced cultures. They had they had they had their technology. Well, this is going to be something that uh, will come back throughout the episode, which is I think we want to somewhat challenge the idea that the main uh, sort of bottleneck in the adoption of wheeled technology is the invention stage. I think actually we, we're we going to see some pretty good evidence that you could perfectly understand the concept of a wheel and even use it in some contexts without transitioning your culture to wheel-based transport in general because it's not as useful to you as it might be to somebody else. Now, before the wheel, if, if we're going to try and imagine the the, uh, the the precursor to the wheel, it's likely uh, a sledge type operation. Where and and this would have worked ex- exceedingly well in the snow. And this was the kind of technology that was likely used to uh, haul stones to Stonehenge. Yeah, we we've talked about the uh, building of the pyramids on stuff to blow your mind before. Mm-hmm. And one of the amazing things about the pyramids is the idea that we all the evidence seems to indicate the pyramids were built without wheels. 
you know, the moving these gigantic blocks of stone across the desert and, and stacking them without the use of wheels, how did they do it? Well, there's some evidence that they just they use teams to move them across the sand, dragging along. And then sometimes I think uh, one of the insights that's come along recently is that archaeologists believe that they had this process of wetting the sand in front of the loads as oh, they would wow. be dragged along through the across the ramps and through the desert. But that just shows that you can do amazing things without wheeled transport. Yeah, and certainly we can all – like if, if we were just thrown into a random backyard with no access to wheels and we had to move, say, a bunch of lumber around, I think we could all happen upon the technology of the sledge pretty easily. You <laughs> right. Know? Uh, where you, you just need some, some horizontal beams kind of fixed together. You can pile mm -hmm. stuff on that and then you can just – you can drag it. And then if you get to a point where you're stuck in mud or or – snow or what have you, uh, something you could do is to roll some timber underneath there. Uh, you know, put put a, a kind of like a round, uh, you know, limbless uh, portion of a tree, log or something under the front and then pull it over and mm -hmm. then collect your log uh, from the back and then put it back in the front again. Um, you know, so you're feeding it like that. And then the next logical step beyond that is to uh, set these logs, these timber rollers in place between pegs. And uh, so this would be, uh, you know, basically a wheel design without a true axle. Uh, and this would have been like the, the very earliest sort of immediate precursor to a wagon. And I think there are some examples of early wheeled vehicles that uh, while they had wheels and an axle, rather than the axle being locked to the vehicle in some kind of like a closed clasp, instead they sat beneath grooves mm -hmm. and the weight of the cart would be would keep them in the grooves. Yeah, I was tempted to say it's kind of like of cars that the Flintstones had. But <laughs> but they have something completely different. They seem to have an axle, right? But then it's a roller for the front wheels and the, the rear wheels, of course. You know, I'm embarrassed to say I'm just failing to picture a Flintstones <laughs> car right now. I can't think of it. Okay. Well, th this we'll have to come back to this later, the, the Flintstones car. To what extent does it or does it certainly not factor into uh, any uh, uh, any level of, uh, of, of wheel innovation? over uh, the course of human history. Well, you know, one of the things about the Flintstones car that actually is going to be useful is mm -hmm. the idea that the Flintstones car, while being a wheeled vehicle, is powered by humans. That's true. And plenty of wheeled vehicles throughout history have not been powered by animals but have been pushed or dragged by human beings. Isn't it odd, though, that the not to spend too much time on the, the, the technology of the Flintstones, <laughs> but they utilized um, – animal labor yes. in pretty much every other aspect of their society, like their garbage disposal is a small dinosaur. Uh -huh. You know, every household gadget is an enslaved dinosaur. And yet, for their cars, they just run around. They use their own foot power. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a bit odd. I think I am picturing their cars now. If I'm picturing correctly, their wheels are too wide. There'd be way too much friction. Mm -hmm. Surely there's been a Mythbusters on this. <laughs> All right, well, let's take our first break. And when we come back, we are going to try and trace down the origin or origins of the wheel. All right, we're back. Okay, now, as we said early on, 
The fact is nobody knows for sure when the wheel was first invented. We do have some evidence about the times in history when it was first appearing in wide use. We have some archaeological evidence, some, you know, visual pictographic records. Um, But still, the question is not fully settled who first invented the wheel and when and where. The only thing we can really be sure of is that Gary Larson is is probably wrong. Right. Uh, it was probably not a Stone Age technology. More likely, this is something that is emerging uh, as as humans are, are leaving the Stone Age for the Bronze Age. Right. Yeah. Pretty much all the experts, I think, tend to put it somewhere within the boundaries of the fourth millennium BCE. So yeah. like 3000 BCE to 4000 BCE. And we'll be discussing a couple of books that offer different theories about this. Now, while we will be talking about the uh, the wheel as an invention, I think one thing we want to emphasize is that we shouldn't necessarily assume that any place and time in history where we find a lack of wheel technology, whether that's, you know, the whole world earlier on or uh, cultures that didn't use a lot of wheel transport even more recently, that we should attribute that to the lack of the ability to come up with the idea of a wheel. Right. Because – To the contrary, I think there are lots of good reasons to believe that many cultures throughout history perfectly understood the concept of a wheel. Oh, yeah. Like Like, we already touched on the Tibetan example. Yeah. uh, And we'll be coming back around to the the, the South and Mesoamerican example. Exactly. So, yeah, they understood the idea of a wheel just fine. They simply didn't have much use for it in transport and could meet their transport needs better in their environment with humans and animals than with wheeled vehicles. Uh, So, and just as a quick analogy, this isn't a perfect analogy, but just let's play a little imagination game. Imagine yourself suddenly dropped into a Neolithic context. There's a world without highways and all that stuff. How useful now is your extremely advanced 21st century car if you want to move stuff around? And that's a car with rubber tires and suspension and all this stuff that the earliest four-wheeled vehicles didn't have. Right. You would have to – even assuming you had a four-wheel drive vehicle, a nice – you know, like just the, 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 the most robust rural mud-in truck you could possibly uh, um, acquire and you took that with you back in time. Uh, you hooked that up to the flux capacitor. <laughs> you know, you, they, only certain environments would really uh, would really work for you and then only until you ran out of gasoline. Yeah. Tr- well, OK. Let's ignore <laughs> the gasoline and say your car is being pulled by horses or pushed by humans or right, something. Right. Or, you, Even, can, or it, you, you just need garbage to put in there yeah. like the flux capacitor. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, you're you're going to run into problems very quickly, especially if you want to go in different kinds of places with it. Mm-hmm. You Let's say you get to some uneven terrain or some mountains or some mud or some swamp. I mean, they're just suddenly – you are met with the reality that Earth is not made for cars. And you can extend that principle to say that really Earth is not made for wheels. Environments that are friendly to wheels are generally environments we've made with wheels in mind. This is sadly where I feel like the Mad Max movies, especially Thunder Road, have really um, really done us a disservice. Imagining a future in which these vehicles just seem to, to roam everywhere. But I guess a desert environment as depicted in those films, like that would maybe be an example of a, the kind of environment where, yes, 
post-apocalyptic uh, vehicles could run wild in a, you know, essentially a, a, a civilization that's sliding back towards Neolithic times. Yeah, and they've got modern technology on their wheeled vehicles, remember. They've got oh, yes. like dune buggy tires that's and stuff. Right. And they've got old decaying roads to drive around that's on. True. Not, not exactly perfect, but yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. But I'm just saying, imagine yourself traveling across the wilderness with cargo uh, in, a, in a place without paved roads. Would you rather have a cart with wheels or a team of pack mules? Mm. Now, humans carrying loads and animals carrying loads have inherent advantages that wheeled vehicles just don't have. They can go around obstacles. They can you know, take their time with uneven footing and all that. There are just tons of contexts where a wheeled vehicle, even a pretty advanced one, is not super useful. Now, on the other hand, while we don't have to assume that lack of inspiration was the main impediment to the adoption of wheel technology, it points throughout history, obviously, the idea did have to occur to people. And so it is fun to think, like, what were those moments like where ancient inventors were struck with this idea? I just have to mention, I don't know, I don't know how good of an idea this is, but I at least found one very interesting and weird-looking paper on this subject, okay. which was um, by Gerhard Schultz uh, in Contributions to Zoology in 2008 called Scarab Beetles at the Interface of Wheel Invention in Nature and Culture. Ah, of course. I mean, the dung beetle. But back exactly. Back to poop again. Yes. Uh, when I, at the time, I almost interrupted to say, like, I'm going to talk about poop. <laughs> I'm so excited, but I didn't. Okay, so here's how it comes in. Schultz writes in his abstract, quote, the combination of rotation and the use of low friction resistance of circular and smooth surfaces to transport a heavy load, as is seen in Scarab Beetles' rolling dung pills is the closest degree of similarity to a wheel found in nature. I think he's obviously – he's excluding the uh, the, the like the bacterial flagellum. Right, right. I mean, well, this would be an animal – this would be an, an example in nature that, that ancient people would have seen. Yeah, see with the naked eye, yeah. Mm-hmm. Populations of dung rolling scarabs may have benefited from the early domestication of large mammals in the Middle East. I suggest that an increased opportunity to observe pill-rolling scarab beetles has inspired humans to invent the wheel. Now, who knows if that's actually true, if he's right at all about what he's Mm -hmm. saying about scarab beetles, but it's not hard to conclude that observing one form or another of rolling behavior in nature could possibly have helped inspire the idea of rolling wheels in technology. Yeah, I I feel like, I mean, he could be right. It's a a fine hypothesis, but... Uh, I, I would tend to lean more towards it's probably a number of things, right? Right. It's seeing the scarab beetle. It's noticing the shape of the sun and the moon. It's uh, it's just kicking stones around and pebbles around and, and eventually uh, toying with some of the, uh, the more constructed forms here. Now, we do have some evidence that the wheel was not invented just once but was independently invented at different times and places throughout history. Yeah, I was reading about this in um, in a book by anthropologist uh, Brian M. Fagan, uh, along with a number of collaborators, uh, titled The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World. Uh, and he talks a, a good bit in there about the wheel, and he points out that, yeah, it was, it was probably invented at least twice. First, somewhere between Mesopotamia and the, and the, and the Danube uh, around the 4th millennium BCE, and then also uh, somewhere in Mesoamerica between 200 BCE and 200 CE. Right, and those are just cases where we know that they were invented separately because there would have been no contact in in between there to share the wheel technology. Right. Uh, and in, when we were looking at the old world wheeled vehicle evidence, we're basically looking at three different types of evidence. We're looking at 
depictions of vehicles or things depictions that we're pretty sure are vehicles because obviously you get in you get into problems with that. We've talked yeah. about that before. Like, is this an image of a mythological horse monster or just a horse right. in motion? That sort of thing. Is this actually a mythical unicorn that we're looking at, or is this a profile uh, drawing of an oryx with the two horns lined up? Exactly. Uh, the the second uh, bit of ev- type of evidence we have clay models, usually clay of wagons or their wheels. And of course, uh, when we're getting into models, uh, sometimes it's a question of is this is this a toy? Was this a real is this a, or is this a small version of a real thing? And then the third bit of evidence is actual vehicle remains. And uh, it's it's actually I was really surprised at some of the reasons why we find some of these vehicle remains. We'll get into it. And of course, in all of this, we're not talking about like one particular model of wheel use. There's there's not one wheel technology, but multiple wheel technologies. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, a book that I was reading to prepare for this episode is called The Wheel, Inventions and Reinventions by Richard W. Bullitt, Columbia University Press, 2016. And this book was really interesting. Now, Bullitt identifies three classes of wheels, actually, three basic streams of technology that, that go in different directions and start at different times. First of all, you've got the wheel set. And what makes this is that the the wheels are fixed to the end of an axle and they turn together when the axle turns. So this would be a, a wheel set. It looks like a, you know, like a barbell. Right. And the, the wheels don't rotate independently. The other version would be you've got an axle and wheels do rotate independently. So they can spin at different speeds and all that kind of thing. And then finally, you have this, this thing that doesn't show up until the modern world, which is casters, like you have on an office chair or a shopping cart. And this rotates on an axle, but also pivots in a socket above the wheel. These are very useful if you want kind of omnidirectional rolling. Mm, yes. Types 1 and 2, Bullet writes, were uh, he agrees that they were invented sometime between 3000 and 4000 BCE. The caster came into use only about 300 years ago. Hmm. Uh, and Bullet has a, has a hypothesis. He, he makes an argument that I'll get into the details of in a minute that the first wheels to see major use were wheel sets like, like you would see on a train, you know, with the fixed wheels on the ends of an axle. And they were used in the copper mines of the Carpathian Mountains of Eastern Europe around 4000 BCE. And we'll get back and explore that in a minute. But one of the things that we should acknowledge is that each of these different types of uh, wheels, we'll ignore the casters for a bit because they're much more recent. Each of the other two types have different advantages and disadvantages. Like wheel sets are easier and cheaper to build. You can just, you know, basically have like a square plank and then put round wheels on each side with square holes to stay put. And they're also less likely to have a wheel like come off and have the cart turn over. Right. But wheel sets have a big problem, which is just imagine trying to move a heavy cart with wheels on a fixed axle. Now try to imagine turning it. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is a pain in the butt. Like you – this is going to be a real problem. So independently rotating wheels are much, much better at turning. Uh, Basically better at doing anything other than going in a straight line. But – of course, they're, uh, you know, they have their own drawbacks. The wheels can come off. 
there's more problems with like friction and wear and tear on the axles and all that. Of course, cars use independently rotating wheels. Trains early on tended to use wheel sets because they were on tracks. It's easier to ensure that they would only be steered through a turn very gradually because there was no manual steering. All the turns could be dictated by the placement of the tracks. Another thing that Bullet points out that's pretty interesting is that he says basically throughout history, if you look all around the world, in places and times where wheels were used, the two-wheeled cart was much more common than the four-wheeled cart. And the main reason for this is that the two-wheeled cart is easier to steer and has less friction. Yeah, like basically a, a, a two-wheeled cart is kind of like a hybrid of of human and wheel. Yeah, and, and or the, animal and wheel. Or animal and wheel, whatever is uh, is is pulling or pushing the contraption. Uh, but when you have the the four-wheeled cart, yeah, it's 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 almost like all machine and then of course you may have something you're going to have something pulling it as well. Yeah. But that's essentially when in this whole episode is we're talking about the emergence of wheel technology. We're talking about the emergence of cart technology. Yeah. Like the cart is the real invention here. Way, uh, various designs that use a pair of wheels or four wheels or more uh, as a means of transporting goods, people, uh, etc. Now, we've touched on this already, but of course, wheels are great if you have a smooth surface. Like a smooth, hard surface, like right. just like a flat rock face or something. Right. If you're in the desert of, uh, of the, the, the Mad Max movies, you know, then you're, I guess you're doing pretty well. But just throw in just a little mud and the situation gets, gets worse. Right. Thus limiting the use of wheels and making the road a necessary invention. Yeah. And just last episode, we were talking about roads, of course. Uh, we'll have a few more things to say about roads today. Now, when we look back to the, the, the first actual wagons, mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at evidence around uh, 2600 to uh, 2400 BCE. Uh, we're looking at uh, stuff in Kish and Ur. You're looking at uh, narrow two-seaters, fixed axle, drawn by some sort of a beast. And uh, most, uh, uh, most experts favor Mesopotamia as the birthplace of of the cart. Yeah. Bullet uh, disagrees with this, but right, this, yeah. I think, has been the consensus for a while. Yeah, this is, this is the general consensus. Uh, but uh, again, this is not something that we can be 100% certain of. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the thing is, though, the earliest evidence doesn't actually prove this out. Um, the, there's evidence of Neolithic wheels uh, in uh, what's now Poland from uh, uh, 3450 to 3100 BCE, ceramic uh, vase, vases that depict four-wheeled vehicles attached to a V-shaped yoke. And then we have clay models of four-wheeled vehicles from Hungary, same period, wood wheel remains from Switzerland and Slovenia from around the same time as well. We also have some 500 burials of the Novotit-Orovka culture, uh, which would have been somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 BCE. Uh, and in here we have actual wagon remains, uh, really considerable vehicle remains from surrounding cultures as well. And according, according to, to anthropologist Brian Fagan, uh, whose book I cited earlier, along with the invention of the, uh, the wheel, you also have the, the language of the wheel. In oh, a, yeah. In a sense, you have the software of the wheel traveling with the hardware of the wheel. And this is actually an interesting way that people sometimes use to try to figure out what was going on in ancient cultures when we don't have archaeological remains mm -hmm. is looking at 
get traces of what people had words for at different places and times. Right, and so there's this whole uh, there's this whole practice of sort of of, uh, of tracking the language for wheel, looking at how, for instance, in Sumerian it's uh, something like gurgur, and in Hebrew it's something like galgal, and in Georgian it's something like gorgal. Mm-hmm. Um, wagon technology would have reached India by the third millennium BCE and China by one thousand BCE. Though by that point, chariot technology had actually out, outstripped it, reaching China around uh, 1200 BCE. So, uh, you know, you can just sort of imagine the, 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 the chart in your mind, uh, a map of uh, Eurasia and uh, the Middle East and all these various, uh, uh, you know, lines of communication as wheel technology and various versions of wheel technology spread with trade and warfare. Now, you might wonder... Despite what you said earlier about uh, about two-wheeled carts being more popular, why then do we see more ancient four-wheel carts in some of these uh, these remains? Well, I wonder if that might have to do with just the circumstances through which they're preserved. Exactly. That uh, Fagan suggests that it may be due to the fact that the four-wheeled cart was a status vehicle for burial. It's like being buried in your Lexus. Yeah, and I mean also, I mean, how do you want to ride to your grave? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, perhaps wrapped up or even put into some sort of a box. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be in a, a two-person cart or are you just going to fall out? No, you want to, you want to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, up there laying nice and proper in a four-wheeled cart. It, it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, an ancient mummy in a shopping cart. Yeah. Uh, here's something else that Fagan adds, quote, But the ownership and use of the vehicles is far from understood. There is ethnographic evidence that suggests that when vehicles have been introduced to non-vehicle societies, they may have become communal property and require constant decision-making concerning their use. Um, so uh, uh, this is interesting because it does make us – it forces us to rethink like how – a cart or a wheeled um, a bit of technology would have even fit into an ancient culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly we, we, we end up looking back in time. We want to p- apply that Flintstone uh, model, right. right, where we're just thinking about modern cars and the way that uh, we use modern cars now. And then also, I mean, you can throw in the way we're using modern cars now is already changing. We're getting into this whole rideshare culture that is uh, drastically different. Uh, so Fagan also, uh, you know, he, he spends a fair amount of time with this. He also writes that it's possible that the use of funeral carts in the late 4th and early 3rd century BCE were so widespread that, quote, their religious purpose outweighed any functional constraints to maintain them. Alternatively, they may have had such short use lives that their ritual wastage in burial may not have appeared so costly. Yeah. So that's an interesting way of thinking about it as well. It's like, like these, they didn't even have to work all that good. Yeah. I mean, all you have to do, it, all it has to do is just take you from, say, the, you know, the, the, the temple grounds to the grave yeah. uh, pit. Uh, it, and it, as long as it doesn't fall apart or if it go off the side of a cliff between those two points, you're good. Like how good does the construction on a coffin really have to be? Exactly. Uh, now, this is this really blew me away. Uh, some of you might be wondering, well, you've talked about two-wheeled carts. We've talked about four-wheeled carts. But what about the one-wheeled cart? What about the mighty wheelbarrow? Yeah. Now, one thing that 
might strike us as odd is that in a Western context, I think we almost always think about the wheelbarrow as a tool of getting work done. You know, you put mulch in it or something and roll it away. And the wheelbarrow is a wonderful, simple little invention. It combines the wheel with the lever, right? You get leverage by lifting up against the wheel and you don't have to carry all of the load and roll it off to wherever you need it. But it's not always just for getting work done. That's right. It's easy to begrudge the wheelbarrow, really, and think of it as just this this crude but necessary step in, like, moving mulch or something around, right? Um, and it, but, I, but when you look at what was done with the one-wheeled cart in, uh, in China, for instance, it, it feels like the term wheelbarrow is inappropriate because, yeah. because we're, we're really limiting the things that they did. The Chinese are actually the inventors of the wheelbarrow, according to Fagan. Uh, and they attribute its uh, in- invention to uh, one uh, Zhu Lang, a third century CE general inventor and, of course, wizard. Nice. Um, it was known as the wooden ox or the gliding <laughs> horse. And there were several different varieties uh, that they mastered, including both push and pull wheelbarrows, passenger wheelbarrows, uh, systems that had better traction, and check this out, a wheelbarrow with sails. Yes, sails, a 16th wow. century invention at least. It may have gone back uh, further than that. And it had uh, five to six foot or one and a half to 1.8 meter sails to deploy when terrain and winds permitted. So this is a land sailboat. Yeah, essentially, <laughs> yeah. But I I would never have th- uh, thought of the wheelbarrow like reaching such heights of, uh, of technological advancement. Again, it's, it feels unfair to even call that a wheelbarrow. No, I think you'd have to – I would assume you'd have to have a human steering it, right? Yeah, I would assume there'd have to be a human in the mix there for <laughs> sure. Now, um, Otherwise, you're in for a wild ride. <laughs> well, with the wind involved, it seems like it, it, it could get kind of wild for sure. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. Now, we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the, the emergence of, of wheels in the New World in, uh, in South and Mesoamerica, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot, our main evidence here revolves around models from El Salvador and Mexico from 200 BCE to 200 CE and on through the Spanish conquest as well. And what these are, the evidence we're looking at here are small-scale wheeled animal toys. So they don't look like carts. They're not toy wagons. They're things like dogs and deer and even alligators uh, with just simple wheels. Yeah. So an example would be there's like a clay wheeled dog from I think about 1900 years ago that was made in what's now southern Mexico, the mm-hmm. Olmec culture. So it's it's a clear sign that the, the concept of the wheel existed. Yeah. It was just – it was for toys. It was not something that was utilized. And it's not like there were people saying – or you know, some kid is like, father, why don't you make this into a – a vehicle of war, and then the, the father's laughing and saying, oh, no, 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 that's kid's stuff. We would never. But of course, the question remains, like, why? Why didn't they take this technology that they clearly had, this understanding that they had, and scale it up? Now, one common uh, explanation that's been given for this, I think this was also given by the uh, the historian Jared Diamond in mm-hmm. uh, like Guns, Germs, and Steel, that author. Right. Uh, his idea was that the indigenous American cultures never really developed wheeled transport at any kind of scale because they didn't have large draft animals to move the wheeled vehicles around. Uh, that book I mentioned by Richard Bullitt, Bullitt 
doesn't think that's a very good argument because he points out that the human was very often the creature that moved wheeled vehicles. Oh, yeah. I mean, let's just think back to the um, the wheelbarrow example we were just given. Uh, the, the human can be the uh, the power behind uh, various forms of the cart. And and certainly given the, uh, the brutality of human history, the human may be doing so willingly or under duress. Yeah. So this brings us to this interesting question. We, we know that there are examples of Places in places and times in human history where people had invented the wheel, they had the concept, like they knew how to make it, mm -hmm. they just didn't really use it. Like historians are very often wanting to answer the question of why so many civilizations around the world never adopted widespread use of the wheel. And Bullitt sort of argues that the reason is it's not that they didn't have the idea. It's not that they like didn't know how to use it. They were just not impressed with the usefulness of wheeled vehicles for transport when human and animal transport generally worked just fine. And Bullet points out that almost all cargoes that people are trying to move can actually just be separated into loads of manageable size that can then be carried by humans or pack animals or can be dragged along on a sledge. And instead, he argues that we should flip the question around the other way. What made wheeled transport especially useful at the times and places when it was widely adopted, mm -hmm. not why didn't everybody else widely adopt it? And so this is Bullitt's theory. He says, quote, The wheel was invented for use in copper mines in the Carpathian Mountains of Eastern Europe, and the four-wheeled mine cars in that region were pushed by miners and equipped with wheel sets, that is, wheel assemblies in which the wheels are fixed to the ends of the axle with the entire assembly rotating together. In other words, he's saying that the wheeled vehicle, the first widespread use of the wheeled vehicle, was as a local solution to a particular transportation problem rather than this huge revolutionary breakthrough which would be of immediate and obvious importance everywhere. So this is flipping on its head the idea that like, you know, how people answer these surveys, they say, oh, yeah, the wheel, that's the greatest invention mm -hmm. of all time. It, he, he's actually saying, no, 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 the wheel is not immediately and obviously useful in lots of contexts. It was immediately useful in a very particular context. Another way of thinking about it is the first widespread use of the wheel arose not as an example of engineering genius, but as an example of the particular mechanical usefulness of wheels in a very specific work environment. Okay, so how does he make this case? Well, Bullitt argues that the most accurate calibrated carbon dating of archaeological evidence shows that the wheel was being used in some places in Europe at least as early as the archaeological evidence for wheels in Mesopotamia. And we discussed a little bit about this earlier. Uh, he says that the earliest known archaeological evidence of a wheeled object is also a toy, like we've been saying. It was mm -hmm. a this, this zebra-striped bull with horns mounted on wheels from uh, from a, an ancient culture that existed in western Ukraine in the Carpathian Mountains. And the object is dated to sometime between 3950 and 3650 BCE. Now, again, as we've been discussing, the existence of a toy with wheels does not necessarily mean that the culture that produced it used large wheeled vehicles. Some peoples obviously understood the concept of wheels for toys but didn't have much use for them as transport. Uh, but, of course, it could be a bit of evidence if coupled with some other evidence. So Bullet asks the question, was there anything unique about the transportation needs of this mountainous region around 4000 BCE? And he says, yes, it was the 
emergence of tunneled copper mining in the Carpathian Mountains. Uh. So he's saying that uh, there's this period in history known as the Copper Age. It predates the Bronze Age. Before we were making a lot of bronze stuff, there was this Copper Age, which he said began around 5500 BCE in Serbia. And this was a metalworking age that where copper ore was was separated into pure metal and used to fashion copper tools and, and trinkets and objects. But, Bullet says, by the late Copper Age, most of the low-hanging fruit had been picked. Like, there are surface copper deposits around the world, but those had already been depleted because copper became valuable, and so people found all of the exposed copper and mined it. And as the demand for copper remained or increased while surface copper supply decreased, there was this incentive to dig tunnels into the rocks to find deeper and deeper veins of copper to exploit. Uh, And so he says copper ore is valuable, but it's really dense. And he writes that it weighs about 140 pounds per cubic foot. That's really heavy. And most of the ore is waste. Like most of that weight that you're going to be moving around doesn't actually turn into metal that you can use. He says – Stuff you're going to have to chip away and refine later. Yeah, or or burn off. Yeah. Yeah. So a cubic foot of ore yields only about one to three pounds of the refined metal. And it's 140 pounds of stuff you've got to take out of the mine. So he says inside these mine tunnels, you would have to be constantly carrying baskets of this extremely heavy ore back outside so they could be melted down in fires to separate the copper from the waste product. And so then he's like, okay, think about the properties of these mine tunnels. They could be small, and sometimes the entrance into them would have to be a vertical shaft before you get to the tunnel part, which meant you probably couldn't bring pack animals like oxen into the mines to carry your ore baskets back out to the entrance for you. On the other hand, the inside of the mine shaft would have a relatively smooth rock surface that traveled in a straight line as the floor. So Bullet argues that this is what made late Copper Age mines the perfect environment for the first four-wheeled vehicles in regular use for transport. The loads were very heavy, pack animals were not practical, and smooth stone surfaces on the floor of the tunnel were friendly to wheeled baskets or mine carts rather than being, you know, covered in mud and obstacles and uneven terrain that, that made wheels impractical in a lot of other environments. This is fascinating because it, it reminds me of uh, of more modern examples of, of tunnel environments mm-hmm. where wheels become a necessity. So, I mean, certainly large-scale mining, but I'm also thinking of smuggling tunnels. Oh, yeah. And uh, even I want to say it's been a while since I read – uh, the Great Escape, but I believe they had to – they used some sort of a wheels uh, in that, didn't they? Oh, I don't know. I've never read it. I may have that wrong. Uh, I have to check by that back in. Maybe I have to remove that section if I got that wrong. But uh, <laughs> but but certainly, yeah, if you're in a, a, a cramped little tunnel mm-hmm. and you need to move even yourself along, much less cargo – uh, there's no room for animals. There's limited rules, room for slinging anything over your back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the cart begins to make perfect sense. And we see analogies to this in later technology that we have much better records of. Like the mining environment was crucial to the development of railroads. Mm-hmm. Like rail-based travel later on yeah. developed uh, when people were trying to get ore out of mines. In fact, mines figure into all kinds of stuff. Uh, just coincidentally, you know, the steam engine was also one of the first big uses that it was developed for was not oh, yeah. for moving stuff around, but was for pumping, pumping water. water out Pu- of mines. Yeah, yeah, mines would flood and you had to pump them out and that's what the steam engine was for. A little preview of uh, perhaps a future episode on steam technology. It's fast- There's a fascinating history there as well. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to come back to that. Uh, so anyway, I just want to say in summary, I, we don't know that Bullet's hypothesis here about the origins of the wheel set is correct. But I, I do think it's really interesting. And if you'd like to read his full argument where he presents a whole bunch of evidence, you can check out his book. But if Bullet's argument is correct, the invention of the wheel is truly a case of necessity being the mother of invention in that it's not that there was something special about the inventor, but that there was something special about the problem the inventor faced and the environment in which that problem arose, not necessarily like unique genius or creativity, but unique necessity. All right, so we're going to leave it there for this episode, but please join us for the next episode of Invention because we're going to discuss even more about wheels, and this and the next episode is going to be the one where we get into the legacy of wheels. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. That's where you'll find all those episodes. You'll find links out to some social media accounts that we're active on. Uh, you'll also find a link for our store where you can actually you can get a T-shirt with the Invention logo on it. Uh, that is available right now for your purchase. It's a fun way to support what we do here, but the best way to support what we do here is to subscribe to the show and rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. 